turn with me, if you will, to our text today, found in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. There we read the following words. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all, The more that we read of the sins of uh, Christ's apostles, the more we realize that they too struggled in their Christian lives, just like you and I. The Lord knows our tendency to look upon the apostles and other biblical characters as almost super saints who are so far removed from us that we really have no connection with them in our Christian lives. We view them as not experiencing the same sins that we experience from day to day and the failures that we experience in our lives from day to day. However, as we have continued through the Gospel of Mark, it has become more and more clear that the apostles, though taught directly by the Lord Jesus Christ for a period of three years, continued to manifest various sins and failures in their lives. Now, we ought never, ever to rejoice in the sins of others. But Christ in his tender mercy and in his kind compassion toward us has included the sins of his disciples in the very pages of Scripture for everyone to see. In many ways, their lives are an open book to us in the sins that they committed. Now, why? Why did the Lord do that? Why did He include their sins and failures in the pages of Scripture? Well, first, in order to demonstrate to us the potential that we all have to fall into aggravated sins. Dear ones, none of us are exempt from falling into public sins, into aggravated sins. Second, the second reason Christ has shown us so clearly the sins of his apostles is to reveal to us the inherent pride within us that would deny or at least minimize the possibility that you or I could possibly fall into that particular sin. That we're in some sense beyond falling into that sin. God would have our pride curbed altogether that we do not view ourselves in such a haughty and arrogant manner. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. The third reason that we find the sins of the apostles recorded in the pages of Scripture is to show to us our continual and our desperate need of Jesus Christ moment by moment, day after day after day. We never cease to need the grace of God in our lives. Christ said, any minute in a very literal sense, Without me, ye can do 
nothing. You can do nothing without me. John 15:5. And finally, God has included the sins of the apostles in the Bible in order to demonstrate over and over and over again the riches of his mercy and grace to those who belong to him. To demonstrate that Christ will not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax of faith, although it barely appears to be burning, just barely flickering, the Lord will not quench it and extinguish it. When one receives by faith alone Jesus Christ and his righteousness as one's only hope of eternal salvation, that faith cannot be utterly extinguished. No, not ever. Dear ones, we need to be reminded of and encouraged by these truths every day. For the enemy of our soul desires to destroy our faith and trust in Jesus Christ by the various trials and tribulations, by the many sorrows and heartaches, and by the repeated failures and sins into which we fall. Even as the devil sought to do with Peter and the other disciples the night before our Savior was crucified. Let us carefully note that the very fall of the disciples away from Christ was prophesied by Christ to occur as we see in the following main points from our text. In Mark 14, verses 26-31, first of all, the first main point being Christ prophesies that all of his disciples will forsake him. In Mark 14, verses 26-28. And secondly, Christ prophesies that Peter, in particular, will deny him. Mark 14, verses 29-31. If we consider the first main point, Christ prophesies that all his disciples will forsake him. Let us look again at Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Christ, having just instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples in Mark 14, verses 23 through 25, our text begins by stating that the evening in the upper room came to a close by the Lord singing with his disciples a hymn. Literally, it says, and having hymned, it's actually a verbal participle rather than a noun, and having hymned, they went into the Mount of Olives. The only hymns that we ever find that were sung in the church during the time of David and after the time of David, who is called the sweet psalmist of Israel, were the 150 psalms recorded in the book of Psalms, which was the Psalter, the inspired Psalter, the inspired hymn book of the church, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In fact, many of the psalms found in the book of Psalms are called hymns. The word hymn is used many times to designate those particular psalms. These were not uninspired hymns as many sing in churches today. The hymns sung by the church in the Old Testament and by the church in the New Testament were inspired hymns given by God 
from the Psalter. And one of the strongest arguments for singing only psalms in our worship here upon the earth is that God has never recorded the actual singing, singing of any other hymn and worship than the inspired psalms that are found in the book of Psalms. Most commentators state that the specific hymn here sung by Christ and his disciples was called the Great Hallel. That is, the Great Praise. The Great Hallel, it is noted by, by many Jews living at that time, was comprised of Psalm, Psalms 113 through 118. And it was these particular psalms, as it was noted by Jewish writers at that particular time, that was sung at the time of the Passover. It is also worth noting that in the very transition from the Old Covenant Passover to the New Covenant, Lord's Supper, it is the inspired psalms of the Bible that are sung by the Lord in his worship. The Lord demonstrates in so doing that the Psalms are not outdated or distinctively Jewish. The Psalms are Christian and point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Psalms are the only hymns approved by God to be sung by his church in worship. Now, after having sung together that inspired hymn, our text indicates that the Lord and the eleven disciples, for Judas, you'll recall, had already left to betray the Lord. The Lord and the eleven disciples head out for the Mount of Olives. It says in Mark 14:26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, on the Mount of Olives, there was a garden called Gethsemane, where the Lord desired to meet with his disciples to have a time of prayer and fellowship together, the Lord knowing what was awaiting him very, very shortly, that Judas was just about to bring even his enemies to betray him. And it would appear that after Christ and his disciples left the upper room and before they arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane, as we see in Mark 14.32, there it mentions that they actually arrived, it says, and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, verse 32. But before they arrived there and after they had left the upper room, it would appear that it was at that time, while they were walking, or perhaps rested or stopped somewhere along the way, that the Lord prophesied to his disciples concerning their falling away, and Peter specifically, his denial. As we see in Mark 14.50, this is precisely what did in fact happen when it says concerning the disciples in the garden of Gethsemane and they all forsook him and fled. Not some, but they all forsook him and fled. The Lord Jesus knew that his disciples would desert him when persecution for Christ's sake should arise. That would came to Christ by no surprise. And yet knowing this about his disciples he had just previously welcomed them to the Lord's table, sat with them and invited them to the Lord's Supper, knowing that they were going to fall, knowing that they were going to desert Him and abandon Him, knowing that Peter was going to deny Him. He invited them to the Lord's Supper. And He said to them, in Luke 22.20, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. These very ones who deserted him, these very, very ones 
or one who de- denies him. Were the very ones that Jesus said his blood was shed to purchase. Dear ones, the Lord knows the worst about you and me. Nothing can be hid from his all-penetrating eyes. He sees into the innermost part of our being and, and neither lie nor deception nor hypocrisy can cloud the truth before his gaze into our lives. Did these disciples trust the Lord as their God and Savior? Absolutely. Did these disciples love the Lord Jesus? They certainly did. But in spite of their faith and in spite of their love, in spite of their earnest desire and zeal for the Lord, they faced a trial for which they were no match. And they all fell flat on their faces. Did the Lord love them any less because of this terrible sin on their part? Well, we read John 13.1, which came just before the Passover feast, but I want to read that to you one more time so that this truth is embedded in your mind. John 13.1 Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, and I would say if he knew his hour was come, he also knew what his disciples were going to do by way of of, uh, denying him or fleeing from him and deserting him. When Jesus knew that his hour was come and that he should depart out of this world into the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Period. He loved them until the end. His love for his disciples was unabated, was not altered, was not lessened by what the disciples went through and their failure and their sin. In fact, the the scattering of the disciples at the time in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed was prophesied to occur in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, which is quoted for us here in Mark 14, 27. When the Lord says, For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Dear ones, the sheep not only scatter when a leader is smitten by the enemies of God. It's not only an opportunity for the sheep to be scattered and dispersed when the enemies of God do destroy and take the lives of the leaders of the church. But I would have you to also realize it is an opportunity for the sheep to be scattered when a leader falls away from the truth as well. The truth that he formally maintained, it is an opportunity for the sheep to be scattered in those particular times as well. And it has happened time after time after time throughout history. Dear ones, let us not be so attached to mere human leaders, regardless of who the mere human leaders are, including myself. Let not our confidence be so much in people that if they should be smitten in death or if they should fall away from the truth, that we would flee from Christ and His truth, that we would be scattered. And here, dear ones, is the amazing truth about the love of Jesus Christ. Just as the disciples abandoned the Lord at the moment he needed their support and encouragement most, at least from a human perspective, they fled. When he needed them the most, they fled. Where were they? They were gone, thinking of themselves. But at the moment that they needed his support and his encouragement the most, he voluntarily suffered 
as no man has ever suffered and died for them. Dear ones, if the Lord went to the cross to pay the infinite debt of guilt and punishment, which these unworthy disciples owed to him, he has likewise paid the infinite debt of guilt and punishment for all of those who will embrace him by faith alone, without exception. Christ came to save sinners, not the righteous. There is only hope of eternal salvation in that truth. Christ came to save sinners and not the righteous. And so I ask you today, are you a sinner? Are you ungodly? Are there corrupt desires in your heart and evil words upon your lips? Then you are qualified to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive by His free gift the gift of righteousness, the gift of forgiveness, and the gift of everlasting life. Never ever look at your sins, dear ones, as disqualifying you from coming to Christ. Rather look at your sins as in a sense qualifying you to come to Christ, who alone can forgive sin and who alone can grant true repentance and sorrow for sin and a holy desire to turn from those sins and to follow Him all the days of their lives. But note also, before we leave this first main point, note also that the Lord not only prophesied that a sheep would abandon Him in His moment of pain and anguish and suffering, He also comforted His disciples with the certain hope that he would be raised from the dead and that they would be restored unto him. Having been scattered, they would be restored unto him again. Look with me at Mark 14:28. Jesus says, But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. In other words, I will lead you and you will follow me into Galilee. I would have you simply observe here, dear ones, that without the certain hope of Christ's resurrection, which guarantees that we are forgiven, it is God's stamp and guarantee that what Christ accomplished upon the cross is in fact the case and the truth. That our sins have been forgiven. That we have been redeemed that there is nothing more that needs to be done to purchase the salvation and to accomplish the salvation of man. Christ has done it all. And His resurrection certifies and confirms that once and for all. And without that resurrection, dear ones, there is only a meaningless pursuit of some religious ideas just like everybody else in the world who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. They're simply pursuing philosophical and religious ideas, bouncing ideas off of one another that have no certainty and no assurance of everlasting life because it is only by virtue of the resurrection of Christ that we know the fact that Jesus Christ lives that we know that we are forgiven. And we are assured, dear ones, that if Christ has overcome death, there is no enemy that can overcome us. Absolutely no enemy that can ultimately overcome us. Because death is said to be the last enemy. And if Jesus has overcome the last enemy for us, even death, he has already overcome all of our enemies for us. It's simply a matter of seeing that victory realized in our lives. 
Here the Lord assures his disciples that although they would fall, their fall would not be permanent. We come now to the second main point today. Christ prophesies that Peter, in particular, will deny him. In Mark 14, verses 29-31. And there we read the following verses. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. The Lord now turns his attention from the disciples as a whole to one disciple in particular, namely Peter. For Peter foolishly extols before the Lord and before the other disciples his untarnished faithfulness and his unbreakable loyalty to Christ. No doubt Peter was very sincere in his affection for the Lord. However, he sets himself up for a very, very big fall. Because the Lord himself has here said that Peter will deny him. And he actually says, Lord, in effect, he says, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. That would never happen to me. Now, if that's not pride and presumption, then tell me what it is. For someone to actually say to the Lord, you are wrong, I will never do that. Pride, dear ones, in our soul diminishes faith. It doesn't ever increase faith. For pride takes the eye of faith off of Christ and places it upon our resources, upon our righteousness, upon our strengths and abilities, and rather than upon Christ alone. It is humility that keeps the eye of faith upon Christ and off of self. Peter, dear ones, was over, overconfident here in his own ability and strength to face the trials of the future. Pride cometh before a fall. Because Peter implied here that he loved Christ, in effect, more than the other disciples and would therefore not forsake him, the Lord even after Christ's resurrection, confronted Peter, you'll recall in John 21:15, the Lord confronted Peter with this very pride, asking him three times, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Lovest thou me more than all of these other disciples, Peter? Because that was, in effect, what he was saying here. Even if every man, even if all these other disciples, Lord, deny you, forsake you, I will never do that. He was saying, I love you more than all the rest. And the Lord confronts him with that particular sin of pride. Oh, how our foolish pride, dear ones, sets us up for major trials and major falls. Well, the Lord then prophesies that Peter will not only forsake him like the other disciples, but that Peter will that very same night deny that he even knows the Lord Jesus. And not only one time, but three times, as we read in Mark 14.30. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, 
that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter then even more strenuously objects to Christ's words. He takes exception to what Christ has just said even more vigorously in Mark 14.31 and says, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. That, that expression... I will not deny thee in any wise. It is in the Greek language a double negative, which is the strongest way to be able to say that something would not happen. And in so doing, dear ones, we don't have to wait for Peter to deny the Lord later on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hasn't he already in some sense denied the Lord? Has he not already in some sense denied the Lord by denying the truthfulness of his word? Dear ones, when we turn our backs upon the truth of God as revealed to us in Scripture, we, like Peter, deny Christ in this sense. We act as though his word is not important, not relevant, too hard to obey or too extreme in its demands. And in so doing, we unwittingly attack the very authority and truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now at this point, dear ones, and for the remainder of the sermon, I'd like for you to turn with me to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, where we find Luke filling out the discourse between Christ and Peter. In these two verses, Christ tells Peter that although he, Peter, will be severely tried by the devil, Peter's faith will not and cannot be destroyed. Now, there are three reasons found within these two verses as to why Peter's faith cannot be destroyed in spite of the severe fall that Peter will sustain. Three reasons why Peter's faith cannot fail. The first reason, Peter's faith cannot be be destroyed because Satan's power is limited. Look with me at Luke 22.31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan, uh, I'm sorry, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Observe here that Satan, it says, desired to have Peter and the other disciples. Literally, Satan has asked for you. And the you there is not in the singular, but it's in the plural. He's asked for all of you, all of the disciples, to sift all of you like wheat. In other words, Satan first sought and had to seek permission from God before he could lay a single finger on Peter or upon any of the other disciples. Here we see that it is God who is in full control of this situation. It is God who is absolutely sovereign not Satan. For all of Satan's power, dear ones, is delegated to him by God. Satan, dear ones, is simply like a dog upon a leash. And God allows the leash to be extended as God sees fit according to his most holy, wise, and powerful, and sovereign purposes. But then he pulls in the leash when he, according to his most holy and wise and powerful decree, would have Satan not be allowed to do what he has just been doing. 
You know, dear ones, Satan may sound like a roaring lion, but praise be to God who has closed the lion's mouth so that he cannot devour the Christian nor the Christian faith. Even as Almighty God closed the mouth of the lion when Daniel was in the den of the lion. Satan likewise sought permission from God to bring upon Job, you'll recall, various trials and temptations and sufferings. God allowed Satan to bring upon Job such trials as Job's faith, even to the point where Job lost his children, lost all of his wealth, lost his reputation, and lost his health. It was a trial of the faith. The Lord gave to Satan the boundary line and said, you can go this far, but no further. That's as far as you can go. Job did indeed struggle during this time in his faith during this onslaught of the enemy. But Job was held secure. Nevertheless, he was held secure by the Lord who will not test Job or test us beyond what we are able to endure. This is the promise that God makes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. A wonderful, wonderful promise that we can always cling to when we feel like we've just had enough and can't go any longer or any further. There hath no temptation, or the word there can also mean trial or test, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. The way in which the Lord provides the grace that we would be able to escape may not be around the mountain, it may be over the mountain, or it may be through the mountain, but He will provide the grace that we are able to bear it and to endure it. That is the promise of God to his people. We also find here that the Lord Jesus says that that Satan desired to sift Peter like wheat, to sift Peter and all of the disciples like wheat, so as to destroy their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the sifting process in the ancient world was comprised basically of two steps. The first step was to put all of the kernels of grain, wheat, upon this large blanket or canvas and to take some type of a implement or tool that was flat and to beat the kernel, to beat the grain, in order to separate the chaff from the kernel of wheat. The second step was to take the, some type of a container to scoop up the wheat and to throw it up in the ground, or from the ground, up into the air and to allow the wind to blow the chaff and to allow the kernel of grain shaken now to fall, being heavier, to fall to the ground. This was the particular process that was used in sifting in the ancient world. And I'm sure that if a kernel of wheat had feelings to that particular process, it would say, Ouch! That hurts! Or stop! This is painful! Dear ones, Satan wanted to beat the disciples to the point that the faith would be destroyed altogether. Or did the point that the disciples would be rendered completely ineffective in their service to the Lord? The dear one, Satan may desire 
to sift you like wheat as he did the disciples. Through physical suffering, through financial stress, through trials that come to the church, through problems in your marriage, through rebellion of children, through besetting sins in your life, or through your death or the death of loved ones. But God, who loves you with an everlasting love, has determined to refine you so that you come out of the lion's den or out of the fiery furnace with your faith increased in the Lord rather than diminished or destroyed. I ask you, dear ones, do you feel like you've been sifted like wheat this past week? Has your faith in Christ been severely tested in some way? It may be Satan's desire to destroy your faith, but it is God's unalterable will and purpose to refine and to strengthen your faith. And this God will do, even turning the evil designs and wicked schemes of the enemy into that which is good for us. The second reason why Peter's faith could not be destroyed, Peter's faith cannot be destroyed because Christ's prayers are always answered. Look with me at Luke 22, verse 32, the first part of that verse. Jesus says, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Here we see that Christ prays for Peter in particular. At this particular point, he changes from the plural uh, pronoun, you, to the singular pronoun, thee. I prayed for thee in particular because of the intense trial, Peter, that you're going to face in denying me three times. you something, dear ones. Does Christ always pray according to the will of God? Absolutely, he does. According to John 8.29, the Lord says, <clears throat> the latter part of that verse, for I do always those things that please him. Always those things that please him. If he did not pray according to the will of God, that would certainly not be pleasing to God. It certainly uh, infers that even in Christ's prayers, he always prays according to the will of God. Let me all ask you another question. Does God always hear and answer his beloved Son in that for which Christ prays? According to John 11.42, absolutely, he does. The Lord Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus says this. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And I knew... He's speaking to his father. And I knew that thou hearest me always. Therefore, dear ones, when Christ prays for Peter, that Peter's faith would not be destroyed, it is absolutely impossible for Peter's faith in Christ to cease because Christ's prayers are always efficacious and effective. Always, without exception. Note here that Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. That is, that it would not utterly or completely fail so as to cease to exist altogether. And therefore, Peter's faith did not completely fail, even though it was severely tried and tested. It did not fail. But just in case you might be thinking something like this at this point in time, Of course, Christ's prayers 
for Peter were certainly effective because look at who Peter was. He was an apostle. God was going to use him mightily to preach the gospel in the world. And I'm just a nobody in Christ's kingdom. Let me remind you, dear ones, it was not because of who Peter was that Christ's prayers for Peter were effective. It was because of who Christ was and who, and because of who Christ forever is that Christ's prayers for Peter were effective. God the, Fa- <clears throat> God the Father says concerning Christ, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In other words, Christ's prayers on our behalf, dear ones, are not heard and answered by God based upon our faithfulness, the degree of our faithfulness, the degree of our obedience, but rather are heard and answered ultimately based upon Christ's faithfulness and obedience. Beloved, Peter was a sinner like you and me. Peter failed the Lord and even denying the Lord three times. Denying that he even knew the Lord. That he was even acquainted with the Lord. Because, as we shall see in weeks to come, even menial, lowly servants a maid or maiden approached him and said, Aren't you one of Christ's disciples? I mean, no one was holding a gun to Peter's head when he denied the Lord. No one had threatened death to Peter at that particular point. But he denied the Lord three times. He was ashamed of his Savior. And yet, dear ones, Christ loved this same Peter. He loved this Peter who would deny him. He loved him with an everlasting love and earnestly and powerfully prayed for Peter that his faith would not completely fail, and it did not. And dear ones, the same promise is made to all who will come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone and receive him and his glorious righteousness. For Christ is our sympathetic priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us, according to the promise that we find in Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Dear Christian, I want you to know today you have a prayer warrior who never ceases to pray for you that your faith will not fail. Who never ceases to pray for you regardless of the storms that you will pass through in this life. Regardless of the suffering and the persecution that you will experience. He never ceases to stop. He never ceases nor stops praying for you. Let your faith, dear ones, Let your faith be cast upon the Lord of glory who ever lives to make intercession for you. For your faith cannot be destroyed because the Son of the Most High God is the one who is praying for you. And finally, I'd have you notice from our text, or from this text in verse 22, Peter's faith cannot be destroyed because Christ promises that Peter will persevere. Christ promises that Peter will persevere. Notice what the Lord says in Luke 22, verse 33, the second, 32, the second part. Luke 22, verse 32, the second part. Jesus says, And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Oh, what a precious, precious promise here. comfort and encouragement to Peter. The Lord does not say, and Peter, if thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. But rather, he says, and 
when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Literally, the Lord said to Peter here, and once you have returned, and once you have returned, strengthen your brethren by what you have gone through yourself. You see, dear ones, there was never, ever any question in the mind of the Lord that Peter would return to the Lord after having denied him. It was absolutely certain because Christ had promised it to Peter. And not only to Peter does he make the same promise, dear ones, because as we said, the promise doesn't depend upon Peter or upon Peter's status. The promise depends upon Christ. And all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. The promise is to us as well. And when you, all of you, are returned, strengthen the brethren. It's the promise to you as well today. The reason Peter, dear ones, repented of his sin and returned to the Lord whereas Judas did not, is because Christ promised that Peter would persevere. Christ had made a promise, and Peter had embraced that promise by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not apparent that it is not the strength of one's faith that saves him, but rather the object of one's faith that saves him? Peter's faith, dear ones, was ever so weak at the time that Satan sifted him like wheat. But as weak as his faith was, his faith was in an all-sufficient Christ, a merciful Christ, a righteous Christ, a mighty Christ, and a faithful Christ. Dear ones, as we've said many times before, even the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. That faith is in the God who created the mountains, formed the mountains out of nothing. This biblical truth does not grant to the Christian the license to go out and sin in any way that he pleases to sin. If anything, dear ones, the love and the promise of God gives us the grace to grow in our desire to turn from and to hate our sin more and more and more. But we understand it was our sin that put the Lord Jesus Christ upon that cross and caused all of His suffering. It was our sin that did that. It was our sin that brought upon Him the infinite wrath of the everlasting God. God's promise, dear ones, of perseverance to all those who trust in Christ alone for their eternal salvation should have the effect of crushing our pride and our rebellion, not increasing our pride and our rebellion. For how can we trample upon a salvation that is so free and undeserving, a love and grace that is ours as a result of the suffering which Christ experienced. Let me direct your attention, dear ones, to the unfailing promise of the Lord our God who cannot lie in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. There the Lord Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That is, all that the Father from eternity has given to the Son to save in the covenant of redemption, they shall come to me. They shall believe in me. They shall trust in me. Every single last one of them. And him that cometh to me, that is, he who believes in me, I will in no wise cast out. It's that same double negative that Peter said, I will no not ever deny you, Jesus says here, I will no not ever cast you out. Whereas Peter could not keep his promise, Jesus does keep his promise and cannot lie. 
Jesus continues in that same passage, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, not even one. All of those whom God had given to Christ to save in the covenant of redemption from all eternity, the Lord Jesus said, I will not lose even one, but should raise it up again at the last day. Every last one will be raised up in that glorious resurrection of the redeemed. And Jesus concludes by saying, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Beloved, in conclusion, here is the hope and the encouragement that not only a Peter needs, but every one of us needs. Every child of God needs to hear. The just man may fall indeed seven times, but rises again by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, faithfulness of Christ. The Christian may be knocked down, but he cannot get permanently knocked out. For Christ's power, never forget, Dylan, listen closely to this closing statement. For Christ's power, and Christ's faithfulness is greater than all the weakness of your faith. It's greater than all of your besetting sin. It's greater than you. Where, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. To the glory of God, our Savior. Amen. Let us together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the words of life and encouragement that come even from the sins and the failures that we find in the lives of Thy people. Lord, by this Thou dost not encourage us to fall into sin. We are not to rejoice in the sins of others or in the errors of others. But, O Lord, we are nevertheless to see that Thou dost use even these to teach us of our own weakness, of our own frailty, to teach us and to show us where our sins lead, but also to show us, our Father, that Thou art always faithful. That, Father, our weakness and our frailties do not cancel or eliminate thy power, thy grace, and thy mercy to those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. How we praise thee, O Lord, that this is the promise that is to us. We embrace it, O Lord, this day. We, we rejoice in it. We go forth, O Father, this day, singing of such love and mercy to us. We ask our God that Thou would use even these promises to encourage us this week as we face the various trials and suffering, the tribulations that come our way. Satan may seek to destroy us and destroy our faith, but Father, Thou art going to use this to refine our faith to purge the dross, to sanctify us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And in that, we can and will rejoice forevermore. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.sw.org. 
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.